Okay, church. Well, you, as you know, uh, back in February, uh, Laurel and I went to Israel for a 10-day vacation. Slash, uh, well, I guess people on vacation. Slash uh, business trip. <laughs> no, but anyway, uh, Peter and Deanna were the ones who led the, the tour. And Peter, as you know, has been here a few times. Uh, preached here, I think, at least three times over the course of the six-year church plan. So he's not new to many of us, but he's new to some of you who are maybe you've just joined the church in the last year or two. And so um, we want to welcome Peter here. Uh, he may give a little bit of introduction to who he is in terms of his background in the, in the beginning here. But um, I'll just talk, to, talk to about him on a personal note. Um, the Lord over the years has brought different individuals into my life for different purposes for helping me grow in my faith and in my, my wisdom of the scriptures. And, you know, uh, I had Lauren Schultz, like in the beginning, when I was a baby, uh, imp- impacting me. Then his son-in-law, Dan, uh, of course, has been a major influence in my life over the last uh, seven years. And the Lord uh, um, has brought one other fellow into my life who's impacted my life in a great way, and that's Peter. And uh, the reason he's so important to me uh, in terms of my own spiritual growth and development has been I've always had a fascination with the Jewish people and with the, the nation of Israel. But it, unfortunately in the West, um, there's not a lot of people that are sort of uh, have the same care and zeal for Israel that, uh, that I would say that I would have shared with, uh, or that I had personally. And uh, we, we're not going to get into replacement theology and things like that now. But there's uh, some teaching in the, that through the scriptures that people have adopted wrongly that believe that uh, the church has replaced Israel. So the Christians in our, in, our, uh, in our Western Hemisphere don't always exactly uphold Israel as God's people to the same degree as, say, our Genesis house does through the understanding of scripture that we do. make a long story short, uh, uh, usually now because of my interest in Israel and my understanding of uh, God's care for the people still to this day, Peter is a great wealth of resource because his whole focus and his whole, uh, his whole life is dedicated to the Jewish nation and the Jewish people. And so many times I've quoted him in my sermons and whenever I've done anything to do with uh, the temple or uh, any thing that happens to a Sadducee and a Pharisee, I usually phone him first before I preach to you guys and to make sure that I have things right. And uh, no pressure, not saying that you're uh, God or anything, but uh, in the human flesh, uh, for Israel's sake, you might as well be for me. <laughs> Just because I, I trust you immensely. So, yeah, so, no, Peter has uh, been a great resource and helped me uh, grow in my understanding of uh, the Jewish people and, and understanding the Old Testament, New Testament scriptures and how they join together. So, uh, yeah, I'm excited to have him here. And I know when you hear him preach, you'll understand exactly why I go to him uh, uh, repeatedly uh, throughout the uh, years here for, um, for wisdom and guidance. So, Peter, uh, welcome and uh, enjoy your time. Yeah. You want to stand? At least for now. Okay, yeah, well, it's right behind you there. Yeah, yeah no worries. Why? Well, it's wonderful to be here. Can I, can I yeah. maybe make this a little bit? Yep. Yeah. What do you want to do? Raise this up just a bit. There, perfect. It's wonderful to be here again. I said to Andrew, I really thanked him for the disco ball. <laughs> I was like, that is such a real nice touch. Um, I moved. No, but this, Andrew and I have become very dear friends. I think the first time I met him, you look, oh, you're making sure that's going on. The first, I thought you were looking at something in my water. The, uh, <laughs> the first time I met him was at Kevin Abbey's wedding. Right? You were playing fiddle. Yes. 
Yeah, and so it's been just an amazing pleasure and a real humbling experience to journey with Andrew. I love him as a brother, and um, I care deeply for him, and his integrity is just incredible. So you guys have a gift in, in Andrew and his service and his heart. Uh, he just bears it out, and it's just a wonderful thing. And yeah, I, I, you know, I love it, him picking my brain. I don't know everything, so he picks my brain, and it's, I think that's just one of the things that how the body of Christ works, is we bless, we pour into people, we bless them, and in return they pour into us, and we get blessed, and we all grow together. And so this is just a real uh, privilege to be here. Um, I'll sh just share a little bit about myself on top of what Andrew's already shared. Uh, my wife, Deanna, my beautiful wife, is sitting in the, right in the front there. My in-laws are just behind the Dexters, Harvey and Gail. And uh, Deanna and I have been married 13 years. We have two beautiful children. I think they're downstairs. I think. I hope. I hope. I pray. They're goldfish. Yeah, they're, they're down there. So Judah is five and Naomi's two. And it's been a journey. Uh, we met at Prairie uh, College, or Prairie Bible College, and she went to the University of Lethbridge after that. And so when we got married, I, uh, we lived four years in Lethbridge, and the Lord called us to Israel. Israel had been in my bones since I was a, a young little child. I grew up in a home that had a heart for Israel. My dad's a pastor, and they had been to Israel in the 1970s. And I grew up in southern Ontario, so I knew a lot of Jewish people, and always just had a real heavy burden uh, for the nation of Israel and the Jewish people in scriptures and in our world today. Is, and the, how this all connects. And um, it's just an incredible thing. If you want, want to, to be able to physically see one of the incredible assurances that God has given us, tangible, literal, and physical, you can look at the nation of Israel. The good, the bad, the ugly. It's all consistent. And it's all God's faithfulness. Because it's not about us. It's not about Israel. It's all about God. And that's the incredible thing when we dive into Scripture and we realize why God chose to work with people from Noah to Abraham to Moses to David to right through the Scriptures to Paul. Why He works with these people because they're finite, imperfect people and He molds them uh, how He wants them. And, he, and His name is glorified through these individuals and through this nation. Even when the nation is unfaithful, his name is still glorified. I think that's a, a pretty incredible thing. That is a very amazing truth. That even when Israel isn't in obedience, God's name is glorified because his word shines through of assurance and his faithfulness and his holiness that we can trust. And it's an amazing thing. So I'm the National Director with Bridges for Peace. What is Bridges for Peace? Bridges for Peace, we are a Christian organization that started in 1976, and we were Christians uh, supporting Israel and building relationships between Christians and Jews in Israel and around the world. So half of what I do for a living um, in this full time is uh, going to churches all around the country. I'm speaking in churches and synagogues and speaking with Jewish leaders and Christian leaders and talking to people and teaching education in colleges, seminaries. I go all over the country. I go to Israel all the time. My wife and I lived in Israel for just over three years. Uh, Israel's been back and forth. We even honeymooned in Israel during the end of the Second Lebanon War. So we love Israel. Um, and it really is an incredible, incredible place. Because it's, it's not just this ancient thing. 
It's ancient and modern. It shows God's promises then and now and for the future. And, the, and what it does is put flesh on the bones. These aren't mythical places. These aren't mythical stories. You can stand on the very spot that the prophet Zechariah said, the Messiah King is going to come back and his, his feet are going to touch the Mount of Olives and split the mountain. And he's going to reign in Jerusalem. And you can be in that city. You can be on that mountain. And it's not like the mountains here, but it is a mountain, a small one. And, and all of these things, when you, when you look at it, it's not just all subjective. It's not just all relative. It's, it's true. And it's an amazing thing because it gives me goosebumps, but it also reinforces my faith. And what I want to do this morning is go through probably a common story. If you're, if you're very familiar with your Bible, if you've been a believer for a long time, you've probably read this story many times. Even if you had, haven't been a believer for a long time, maybe you're not a believer, this is unfamiliar to you, or you're a little bit familiar with it, I think that you are going to see some incredible things here. Because like when we go through the Gospels, like when we go through the Gospels, we encounter Jesus, we encounter a lot of Jewish people, of course we would, we're in Israel. So this is predominantly what, he is the Messiah, he is the Messiah that's been prophesied about by the prophets for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and he comes in the flesh, fully man, fully God. He's not leading a rebellion. He's not making, uh, giving money to the poor. He's coming for a purpose. And ultimately we know that. He's coming to atone for the sins. He is a sacrificial lamb. He's going to atone for the sins. Because only, because the blood of goats, the blood of lambs could never deal with the complete atonement of sins. So he's going to come and finish it. He's the long-awaited Messiah. He's going to be a suffering servant. He's also a king. There's all these incredible things, but he comes as a Jewish man, and he's a Jewish rabbi, and he's a teacher, and, and, he, and he comes into a culture uh, that it has the scriptures, they would call them the Tanakh or the Old Testament, they're very familiar with the scriptures, some more than others. Um, there's different uh, assumptions or approaches to how you live the scriptures, the Jewish people are very concerned with living, not just the, uh, theoretical knowledge, but living their faith. They, it's very outward, and it's very expressive. Um, he comes to a, a, a people where they're very familiar with traveling rabbis and schools uh, with di that have disciples. Many, many, many schools. I mean, we, we see Jesus encountering the Pharisees. Did you know that there was between six to 6,000 to 8,000 people that were part of the Pharisees? And in the Pharisees were all these schools of thought. So Jesus would have had a lot in common with a lot of the Pharisees. Paul was a Pharisee. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Um, and the Pharisees were very concerned about going out among the people and, if you want to call it, missionizing them. Helping Jewish people be better Jews. Helping them understand the scriptures better. Helping them understand what repentance is or fasting or prayer. All of these things. So Jesus comes into this culture that's very immersed. And he's a rabbi. But he's not just a rabbi, he's the ultimate rabbi, he is the Mashiach, he is the Messiah, he is the anointed one, he is the son of God and the son of man. There's many different um, opinions of what that all means among the Jewish people of that day. Is he supposed to suffer? Is he also a king or is he just a king? Is he divine? Is he not? Like... And all of this is coming together and Jesus literally steps into history, into this reality of this world that we have, into time, 
someone who is not bound by time comes into time, is humbled as a human being, born as a baby, but fully God, to live among this people, Israel, and to show himself for who he is, but ultimately to go out to the world. Who he is and his name and everything is going to go out to the world. And that's the incredible thing for us. We are included in that. We're grafted into that. So this is incredibly important. So, I've entitled this, The Kanaf. And I'll explain what a Kanaf is. Act of faith inspired by scripture. When we read God's word, this is just saturated within us. And get us excited and, and, and motivate us to do, to be, to live, to think, to feel, all of this. And this is an incredible thing. Motivated uh, faith, act of faith by Scripture. And we're going to look at this very common story. So you can look, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. Mark 5, verse 25 to 34. If you don't have a Bible, I will throw it up here. The translation on the screen will be the New King James Version. So this is a very common story. I'm going to give you a little bit of background around it, and then we'll dive into it, and we'll kind of dissect this story so that the next time you read this story, it will mean something quite different. Okay, so Jesus is in the Galilee, all right? He's in northern, what we call northern Israel, around the, the Canaret, the Sea of Galilee. 80% of Jesus' ministry is in that region. And in that time, it was filled not with mega cities, not something like Jerusalem, but there was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of villages, some of them towns, and a few of them could be considered at that time, like Tiberias, a city, okay? But the, the Galilee is also a very religious uh, center. There's a lot of Jewish people living up there, but there's also a lot of Gentiles living up there. And there, you might have heard the term the Decapolis, there are a series of 10 cities, predominantly Greek. If there were Jews living in there, they would have been Jews influenced by Greek culture. But at this time, most, for sure, religious Jews, or a Jewish person who had a conviction for the scripture, would typically live separate from the Greeks, and the Greeks would live separate from the Jews. So it was kind of both ways. The Jewish people, and this is very, um, and this is very uh, important to our story, Jewish people at that time were very concerned with a few things. Purity, okay? Purity and cleanliness and table fellowship. Table fellowship. Who you broke bread with is very important. What you ate was very important. And purity, why? Because they're told to. When we go back in Scripture into Leviticus, God outlines, I'm a holy God. If you're going to be a holy people, this is how you are to live. And he gives different laws. Now, these laws didn't say. They're not giving automatic salvation. It's a symbol. It's an image. It's a way to live life, to reflect on who God is. And for every day and everywhere you go and what you eat, to consider who God is. To live in relationship. Now, obviously, sometimes when we are given rules, some people go above and beyond, and it can get into legalism. But I don't want to just stereotype that all Jews at this point or at this time were living legalistically. Ritual purity was very important. Ritual purity was also very important for the pagans. So ritual purity wasn't a Jewish thing. It was a, an ancient world thing, ritual purity. 
But you see how God takes what's marred or evil or uh, perverse from the pagan world and he cleans it and he, and he shows it for what it's supposed to be, holiness. So the Jewish people are eating clean foods, they're, they're bathing, they're washing, they're making sure they don't eat with pagans. There's all of this stuff and this is the culture of that day. And so this impacts our story because we're going to have an impure woman encounter a rabbi, Yeshua, Jesus, okay? And this is a quite a fascinating story. So, in Mark 5, verse 25, 34. Now when Jesus had crossed, oh, sorry. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately, the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. So this is an amazing, amazing point. All right? So this woman with a flow of blood, we don't know exactly what it is. She's not obviously dead, but she's ailing or ill, very ill. She has consulted physicians of that time. She comes into the crowd because she knows Jesus is there. Where is she? She's in, there's this village called Capernaum, or Capernaum, the village of Naum. And it's on the, the, the base, or the, the northern edge, the coast of the Sea of Galilee. This is where Peter lived. This is where Jesus spent a lot of time. There's many villages around this area Jesus preached. There's a synagogue in this, in this village. And we know when this woman, just before the woman touches her, uh, him, he has been told by a man named Urias or Jairus that his daughter is dying and can you please come and heal my daughter. When we also look at all the Gospels, Jesus is in Capernaum. It's where he heals the man who's lowered from the, the roof, right? They, they can't get in. There's so many people. The throng is crowded in this house that they break open the, the, the ceiling and lower their friend in and Jesus heals them and says your sins are healed and there's controversy. Who can you know forgive sins? Only God. And then Jesus comes out of this of this house. Now you gotta kind of stop thinking of Okotoks. We have these wide sidewalks, wide streets, all of this. I mean, we have what uh, fire codes. You know, if the fire chief arrived here, he'd probably count everybody and we'd be okay. There's no fire codes at this time. Uh, the streets in Capernaum are very very narrow, like little tiny narrow alleys. Like maybe we could get three people standing shoulder to shoulder. And it's a throng of people moving through this small little street with all these little homes going towards the synagogue and this woman touches them. Now, it, like, it, it sounds ridiculous and I would have loved to see the look, 
Uh, when I get to heaven, I want to see the playback. I'm going to look on the disciple's face when he's like, who touched me? Because I'm like, I'm sure they thought, uh-oh, you know, too much sun, right? Or not enough, like, water or food, I don't know. But, like, it's such a bizarre thing to say, especially if you go to Capernaum today, and you can see they've excavated it and dug it out, and you can see the actual little street with the stairs going down to the street, going to the synagogue, because they know where the synagogue is, it's all unveiled, and that's where this all happened. It's not a reconstruction or set up, or it's not fake, it's real. This is the village. Now, when, to piece this all together, we also would need, and I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but you can write this down if you want, Matthew 9, 20 to 22, and Luke 8, 44, give us also more details of this exact story. Okay? So you're putting them all together. And so what I'm preaching this morning is kind of a combination of all of them. So, uh, Mark says that she touched his garment. Okay, well, garments, you've got big sleeves, flowing robes. What well, part of the garment? This is where it's interesting. Matthew and Luke give us the actual location on the garment of what she's touching. The hem of his garment or the border of his garment. Okay, so now we know it's not a sleeve. It's not like up near his neck. It's not on his back. It's down at the bottom. It's a hem or the border of this garment that he's wearing. So what is happening here? Now, I've, I've talked with many people here. I think, you know, without knowing Jewish, Hebraic culture, context of the first century, you can grasp some real truths here. She's desperate. She has a blood flow, 12 years, medicine. She's spending money. She's not being healed. She sees Jesus. She's probably heard that he's healing people. She runs over, maybe trips, I don't know, it's very dramatic, maybe music was playing, and she reaches out, and all she can grab is, oh, I just randomly was able, the only thing was the hem, or the, the border. You know, I would have rather maybe gave him a pat on the back, but all I could get was the hem of his garment. Okay, so obviously there's some insights we can grab from this. We see faith. She believes, and when we read the story, she's healed, and Jesus acknowledges her faith. So we can, you don't have to be a, an expert with however many PhDs to see the, the troubling situation the woman's in and the faith, and there's a healing. But I'm going to take you deeper, because this is a very exciting story. Okay, so where does this happen? In Israel. You can see this is kind of Africa, Arabia, we've got Asia, and Europe coming up to the side. So Israel is like the crossroads. It literally is like a land bridge connecting these continents. Uh, the Romans even called it the Via Maris, the way of the sea. So it was a main trade route going up along the Mediterranean up to Europe, or you could go to Asia. The spice route came through there. If people wanted to get mummified in Egypt, all the spices and the, the embalming uh, materials all came from the east and went through the land of Israel down into Egypt. So it's this major crossroads. I don't believe in coincidence. I believe one of the reasons probably God called Abraham there, planted him there in this nation, Israel, is it connects all the continents. And if you want to get from uh, Asia to Africa or Asia to, to Europe or Africa to Asia or Africa to Arabia, you have to go through this land. And people will be traveling to the land and they hear about the God of Israel. So it's kind of an interesting thing of, well, there's maybe some very strategic place of why God chose this land bridge so his name could get to the nations. It's 
we're going to zoom in a little bit more. Whoop. Okay, there. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. This is maybe a Genesis house trick. <laughs> there. Oh, okay. Hey, Peter, use the keyboard if it's too finicky. Use the arrows. Yeah. Done. I think I'm going to do that. Yeah. Okay, so this is zoomed in on of what Israel, the land of Israel, would have looked like in the first century. You're not going to see, obviously, Israel in the, in the color, because Israel, at this time it was under occupation and control by the Romans. They didn't refer to it as Israel. They called it their provinces of Judea, Edomia, Samaria, Galilee. Um, they referred to it as, as provinces. The Jews would have continued to call it Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. But you can see the Decapolis um, off to the, to the right. That's a very uh, famous place mentioned many times in the Gospels. And you would see a smattering of, of places, also names in here. Bethlehem, Hebron, Emmaus, Joppa, Caesarea, Shechem, Jerusalem. All of these places mentioned in the Scripture. So we're going to go into a little bit closer. The Sea of Galilee, so this is in the north. Okay, so the Decapolis is on the, the bottom, Samaria, the Galilee, and there's the Sea of Galilee. It's a, the Sea of Galilee, a lot of people get this in their mind that it's a sea, it's massive, but it isn't. It's, it's a freshwater lake, pretty much. That you can pedal bike around it, I think, in like four and a half hours. Um, and so you see Capernaum in the top, right there. So there's Capernaum. So this story, that's where it's happening. Okay, Magdala, many people think this is probably where Miriam, Mary Magdalene is from. Magdala, Gennesaret, Capernaum, Chorazin, all of these places. Nazareth is down there, okay, where Jesus grows up. And um, you could go to all these places. This is not just like a sideshow of selling the next tour to Israel, right? You could go to, yeah, it is, infomercial. Okay, all right. Sorry about the, the numbers on the bottom. I guess when you go from, I don't use a Mac. And it always does this. That's fine. That's fine. Um, do I? I cannot sound like Kevin very long. Probably in a few seconds, if I keep talking about computers, you will all realize I know really nothing. Um, okay. So the hem in the corner of the garments is the clue. And I'm, I'm going to read. Let's turn to Numbers 15. Why is this hem or the garment? What is it and why is it so important? So in Numbers 15, we find out that this isn't a random piece of cloth. This is actually commanded by God, which is very fascinating. So Numbers 15, 37 to 41 says this. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners and you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them and that you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined and that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy for your God this isn't legalism remember the commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So this is a command. It's not random. And there's a picture of what the tassels look like. It's not random. It's a commandment. There's a second passage in Deuteronomy 22 verse 12. Again, it's mentioned 
Let me read that. 22, verse 12. You shall make tassels on the four corners of the clothing with, with which you cover yourself. That is the outer cloak. For a Jewish man, we wear a long cloak, and the tassels, there's four of them, are connected to this cloak. It's an identifying symbol as of being a man in the community of Israel. There's a picture even of a modern Jewish... I did not take this. I did not follow the man and snap a photo of his tassels. But this is just an image. Like, it's slightly changed. So, Jewish men in Israel do not wear big, huge cloaks that have tassels on them. But they still wear prayer shawls or mantles or sometimes like an undershirt with the tassels. And they pull the tassels out like this. And they hang below. So, it's to honor the command. Why the tassels? God says... Remember that I am holy and that these would be a memorial or a remembrance of my commandments. They're not good luck charms. They're not rosary beads. They don't rub them uh, and, and hope they're not magic or anything like that. It's a belief that it's an identifying symbol. So it's a visible reminder as a follower of God. Andrew has a cross around his neck. That's a visible reminder that he's a follower of God. Now I know there are people... I think even Madonna for a while wore a cross around her neck. But, I, but I, what, I, what I'm trying to draw a line here is that we sometimes have in our homes or on our clothing or in jewelry visible reminders that remind us that we are God people, Jesus people. This is one of those things. And it's very, very important. But it, this isn't just an item of clothing. It's very important, almost sacred. Because it reminds a Jewish person of chosenness and covenant. Chosenness and covenant. Matthew 6.6, 6, which describes Jesus talking about going into a room or closet. And this is also, a lot of scholars believe this might be a reference to the prayer shawl. Because when Jew Jewish men would pray, that, that garment with the tassels, they would take it and pull it over their heads. And, um, and so it's kind of like to block out the world. To block out distraction and focus on God. I'll show you a couple pictures in a little bit here. Now, let's get into some academia. This is very important. I won't do it too much, okay? Um, the Greek word that, Matthew, that Mark uses is himatio, right at the top, which is an outer garment or, or mantle. This is very important. Experts say the mantle is the primary connotation in this verse. So for a Jewish man, his mantle is also the prayer shawl. The ends of the, of the tassels are called tzitzit. Okay, those are the little tassels, and there's one on each edge. Um, Matthew 9, 20 to 22, and Luke 8, 44, they direct us to the specific section of the garment that was touched. Now the next word, praspadon, is, is described as a tassel of twisted wool. So that says it's not just the corner, it's the tassel. It's actually the little tassel that comes off the corner. So it's not just the corner, it's the little tassel that comes off. And that's the Greek word Matthew and Luke use. So Mark uses the top one. Mark just says an outer garment or mantle. Matthew and Luke actually tell us what it is. It's the twisted wool. That little tiny piece of twisted wool. Now the bottom, the Hebrew, kanaf. Okay, so that was in the title. Kanaf is, uh, is the edge of the talit, or a, or a prayer shawl, or the mantle, and that the tzitzit is connected to, is often called the kanaf. 
So if you are reading Hebrew in your Old Testament, whenever it refers to that edge, it's going to use that word, kanaf. Okay? But the New Testament was written in Koine Greek, not Hebrew, so that's why they use the other words. But we're all talking about the same thing, and all of this is very important, because I'm going to be jumping back and forth. Now, this is the interesting thing. Kanaf is literally translated as wings. The wings, right? Now, I guess if, if a Jewish man was to run really fast, and his cloak went up a little bit with the tassels, maybe it would look like wings. But this is literally what they called it, the wings. The edge is the wings. Now, this is the same Hebrew word behind the meaning of the Greek words which appear in the Gospels. Okay. Each tassel has eight threads and five double knots. And it actually, and this is just as a side note, this is just a very interesting thing. It, it, tum it totals a number of 13, the eight and the five. But then the Hebraical value for the word tzitzit is 600. And in, when you look at the, the, the first five books, there's 613 laws or commandments. So physically, in the tassels, in their number, and this is just how, how Jewish people look at it, because every Hebrew letter is assigned a number, they look at the tassels actually assign the same numbers of the commandments that God gave. So when God says, when you see these tassels and you'll remember my commandments, they're physically tied in and woven into these tassels to remember to be a God person, to be a member of the nation of Israel. And one more thing, Psalm 91. Because when we look at the tassels and this, this talit, this prayer shawl, as a picture of wings, because remember I said kanaf means wings, we can gain new insight into the moving words of Psalm 91, 1 to 4. And this is an amazing thing because this also applies to all of us. We come under, we, we pray often that the Lord is our refuge and He's our strength. Well, you know, David also prayed these very things in, in thinking of God coming under His wings, the wings of the Lord. So in Psalm 91, it says, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God in Him I will trust. Surely He, will, he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with His feathers and under His kanaf you shall take refuge. So there's something very special, very special, in, in embodied in the man with the tassels, but even in David's mind, when he's thinking of God, and being safe and protected by God, he's thinking of himself coming under this kanaf, under his wings. It's a very intimate uh, description of this. Here's some pictures. Even to this day, it is commonplace to see Jewish men during a time of prayer to completely cover their face with this prayer shawl. Now, wearing a prayer shawl like this is a symbolic gesture indicating a person's inward desire not only to be under the law of God, but also to literally clothe himself in his law. Now remember, the law condemns. The law was never given to save, but Paul also says it's holy. And James says it, it's a law of liberty. And Psalm 119, and, and Psalm 19 says it converts the soul. So because of the law, it reveals we're sinners. There is a problem with us. And that brings us, Paul even describes it as a tutor, it brings us to Christ. 
So it's not a bad thing. It's only a bad thing if you're trying to be justified by it, or to gain brownie points, or get saved by it. Because you keeps the whole law and stumbles in one point is guilty of all. You can't. Only Jesus, who is sinless. So out of this understanding in the first century, a belief developed. I'm not saying this is a biblical belief, uh, necessarily a biblical belief, but a belief developed in the first century, I think loosely based on the Bible, that the prayer shawl of the, of the Messiah would have healing powers. And I'll connect that with the Bible. So Jewish people, by the time Jesus comes to the earth, for a few centuries, Jewish people have been thinking that the Messiah, when Messiah comes, his prayer shawl will have healing powers. It will heal. This is an amazing thing. So the kanaf is also considered the authority of a man. So it's, it's, there's a, I know this is a lot. So it's, it's an identifying thing. I'll, be, I'll repeat myself a little. It's an identifying thing of, I am a God person. I am a follower. I am part of the community of Israel. I follow the living God, the only God. I am separated from those pagan nations. And I am devoted to God. I wear His commandments on my mantle. And I can also seek refuge under the refuge of His, of his kanaf, of His wings. But I also believe when Messiah comes, that there's healing in those wings. So we're going to come back to the story. I'm going to give you an example. In 1 Samuel 16, 12 to 13, David is anointed king with oil by the prophet Samuel. Now kings of Judah were all anointed with oil. Saul would have been anointed with oil, David, Solomon, it goes through. So each king of Judah was also an anointed one. That sounds interesting because Messiah means that, or Christ means that, right? But the, the belief was that the kings are anointed ones. The Messiah is the ultimate anointed one. He is the ultimate anointed one. Now, David was anointed and chosen by God through Samuel to be the next king. But there was a problem when David was anointed. The biggest problem was there already was a king. And that king was Saul. In 1 Samuel 24, 4-12, we see Saul has been tracking David and chasing David. He wants to kill him. Why? He's very jealous of him. He also knows he's been anointed. Even though he was kind of a right-hand man, David has huge success in battle. Saul doesn't like this. Saul would rather his sons become king. Saul goes against God's will. And we know David was anointed because Saul was losing the hand of God on his life. And he would later be just absolutely terrified because he would realize that the Holy Spirit had been taken from him just before he was killed in battle. But at this point, Saul is trying to rectify the problem. The problem is, David is anointed. I don't like David. So Saul is chasing David all around through the desert. And he comes to a place called En Gedi. Now we went to En Gedi. En Gedi is an amazing place. It's right near the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is called that because it's dead, it's full of salt, you can't drink that water, but the En Gedi is a, an oasis, okay, it's a beautiful oasis, there's life there, there's animals, there's trees, there's things growing, and you go up and there's water coming out of the rocks and caves, and David went and hid with his men in these caves, and Saul, maybe he was waiting for David, oh, he will starve him out, maybe he was like, oh, well, I'll figure out a way to get in, go in and find him, somewhere during that time, 
So we don't know if he was either having to go to the bathroom or if he was wanting to rest. But it gets very hot down there and Saul goes into a cave to either relieve himself, it's just depending on the Hebrew, or to rest. While he's there, David's men see him, report it to David and say, the Lord has given him into your hands. Kill him. Just go up and put, like a, put a knife in the back of him, right? Stab him in the back. Um, David takes his knife, crawls up to Saul. He's not going to kill him. And he, but he cuts, says, the kanaf. He cuts Saul's kanaf off his cloak. He doesn't just cut a corner of his garment. He cuts his kanaf. The scripture says he cut his garment. The Hebrew says kanaf. So, that it, so they didn't translate it as best as it could have been translated. He cuts his tassels off. And then what happens? Saul gets up, still alive, of course, walks out. You know, maybe he's looking for toilet paper. But he walks out, and David is overcome with guilt. And he comes out there. He could have still been killed. He actually reveals himself and holds it up and says, basically, I could have killed you, but I can't. I, 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 I feel guilty. I've touched God's anointed. And that's the authority of the man. That is something God prescribe every Jewish man to wear. And David violates that and cuts it and then feels overcome with shame and, and basically asks for forgiveness. And Saul, his reaction is, my goodness, I could have been killed. And he, for that time, accepts David back. And so that we, you see this incredible thing with the Kanaf in 1 Samuel. And David asks for forgiveness because of what he did. So now we're going to return to the woman with the issue of blood. She would have been living outside the village of Capernaum. She's not living in the village. Okay? So she's living outside the village. Why? Because Levitical law tells her she's supposed to live outside the, uh, outside the village. Outside of an encampment. Or not with the people. She is sick. Remember I said purity? She is ritually unclean. She has a purity issue. It doesn't mean she's not loved by God. She has a, a, a purity problem. She is sick and unclean. And they had rigid guidelines that were set up by God to be enforced in the Israelite community as a basis for ritual purity. Because it reminds everybody that God is holy. So the woman follows the crowd into the village and touches Jesus. Two problems arise. Number one. Jesus is described as a high priest. Okay? So he's a rabbi as well. He's a Jewish man as well. He's part of the community of Israel. God-fearing. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Son of Man. But he's also described as a high priest in, in Hebrews 3 and 4. So that carries with it the highest spiritual office. So I'm not reading into things here. This is who Jesus is and was and is and is to come. Priests were to maintain very strict levels of purity, even more than the average person. Jesus is also a rabbi, and he's a Jewish man. Therefore, as a member of the Jewish people, he is obligated to be faithful to the Torah and the commandments of God, which he was. He was sinless. The things that he challenges, the Pharisees, are not on Scripture. It's often on tradition or a wrongful interpretation of Scripture. Jesus is pulling them back to the Word of God. So in fact, we know he was sinless. But this also meant Jesus is obligated to obey the commandments regarding purity uh, uh, and cleanliness, which he did. 
It's kind of interesting to think Jesus would have been praying throughout the day. Jesus would have, would have bathed, ritually bathed. Because those things were uh, how Jewish men at that time approached God. And they were loaded with uh, imagery and, and, and symbolism. In Leviticus 15, 25-27, it talks about a blood discharge. So if a woman was to have a blood discharge, which is what this woman has, she is to be separate from the community. So whatever this hemorrhaging, we don't know what the hemorrhaging was. She had it for 12 years. And to be a faithful faithful Torah-observant person to the commandments, she would have lived outside the community, so she would not risk bringing impurity into the community. For anyone who came into direct contact with her, they would be spiritually contaminated, and they would have to ritually go through these uh, hoops to cleanse themselves and present themselves before a priest. This is what they did. This was common life. This wasn't weird to them. So for someone to violate the commandments and deliberately touch someone, causing them to be impure. So it's not like tag, you're it, right? For someone to like, who's supposed to be, the Bible has commanded them to be outside and until they're clean or, or well, they can't come inside. Now, in those days, people would bring them food. There would be mediators and, and ways to go about that, often through relatives. They weren't like left to die. But for someone to come in deliberately and touch someone as if it was a joke or as if that didn't mean anything, that's serious. That could result in separation from the community. It could result in death, how people felt or the reaction of people. Um, so she took her life into her own hands. She took her whole reputation into her own hands to touch Jesus. Now Jesus' physical outward symbol is the kanaf, which is his authority. So why does the woman grab it? Is it superstition? Was that all she could reach? Was it an accident? Now remember the belief that the Messiah's seat seat, the tassels, would have healing powers. No doubt this was linked to one particular passage. So this is where I said earlier, loosely based, Go to Malachi 4.2. Okay. In Malachi 4.2. Now this is about 400, almost 500 years before Jesus. That this prophecy is given. The prophet Malachi, in chapter 4, verse 2, he says this about the Messiah. Okay, okay, Messiah hasn't come yet. He is prophesying about the Messiah who is to come. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, Messiah, shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. The Messiah will arise with healing in his kanaf. Healing in his kanaf. You could take that many different ways, but physical healing? Could it be? Could the Messiah have physical healing in his actual wings? Is it, what is it? Is it spiritual healing? Is it atonement? Healing. This woman sees Jesus. Like, this is an incredible thing. She sees the Son of Righteousness. And this Son of Righteousness is a title. Like Bright Morning Star, the Root of Jesse, Son of David, the Messiah had different titles. 
Some of those titles told us what he would do. Some of them told us the lineage he would come from. But the son of David would have healing in his wings. The Messiah will have healing in his kanaf. Or he'll have healing in the edge of his prayer shawl. This woman most likely knew the scriptures, had grown up with them her whole life, knew about the messianic prophecies, and her action and the significance of what she touched, combined with her faith, could very well have come from believing in this very prophecy and believing who Jesus was. We know over and over in the Gospels, word went out and people heard about Jesus. People flocked to him. This is not a far stretch. This woman lives near Capernaum. She had probably heard these things. She had heard who Jesus was. Is he the Messiah? Maybe he's the Messiah. She believes. And remember the text tells us that she thought to herself, if I just touched his wings, then she would be healed. I'll be healed if I just touch his wings. And sometimes you wonder why that story? Why is it in there? And it must have unique, profound significance and importance. And it's like John describes, if all the actions that Jesus had done were recorded, not all, none of the books, not all the books of the world could fill them. So Jesus did all kinds of things. But we only have a snippet of what he was doing in those three years of ministry. And this story made it into the Gospels. Now Jesus, in his life, fulfilled they estimate about 300 prophecies. It's amazing. But this prophecy, he'd have healing in his wings, is literally, we see it, literally fulfilled. So why did she touch his kanaf? Jesus credits the, her touch, her action to faith. It's not superstition. He, he acknowledges it before everybody. This is faith. Your faith has healed you. This is not a mistake. Her faith has caused her to act. And she believed she would be healed based on the fact that Messiah would have healing in his wings. She also believed it so much she was perhaps willing to, be, to die for it or to be excommunicated. Because what if Jesus wasn't the Messiah, right? Like very minimal, like she makes him impure. The other end of the spectrum, it's not probably not a pretty experience or outcome. So this wasn't an accident or a chance. She was a godly woman. Believing in God's word, she recognized who Jesus was, and the fact she grabs his seat seat shows us she doesn't just think he's another rabbi, he's way more than that, and she touches his wings. And Jesus' action is to affirm her faith, and he points this out. And it's interesting, he points out that her healing and that her faith wasn't, her illness wasn't a result of sin. He doesn't even mention sin. As sometimes in that period, even today, there are Christians in many churches that believe if you get sick, oh, it must be sin. And we, we even know that in scriptures that there were periods where people, has he sinned? Is this why this person's blind? But Jesus doesn't talk about any of that. This healing was a result of her faith. And obviously the tassels weren't magical. They didn't possess a... a uh, magical little power. The power is who's wearing it. That's the thing. The power is coming from the healer is walking among them. The great physician, the ancient of days, in the flesh, is walking before them. And it's an amazing 
amazing story. In Mark 6, 53, 56, we also see where Jesus, wherever he went, and it says in those verses, people tried to touch his tassels. There's also another reference. People were reaching out to touch his tassels. So Jesus came into direct contact with someone who was sick. And according to Levitical commandments, should or would have been living outside the community and a risk of bringing impurity through physical contact. However, as I mentioned, Jesus is a high priest, and this is what I want to close on. Jesus cannot be contaminated. Another, any other priest could be contaminated. Joseph Caiaphas, who was the high priest, could have been contaminated, but not Jesus. He is the ultimate high priest. He is sinless. He is spotless. He is our great high priest. You don't have to be Jewish to be able to say that because we're grafted in. We're part of the commonwealth of Israel, Ephesians 2. We inherit this incredible thing. Galatians 3, we can call Abraham our spiritual uh, father or co-heirs. So this is an amazing thing. God works with Israel. He's not done with Israel. But the church, this remnant comes out, his plan to bring his, his word and salvation to the world came out of Israel. And the gospel goes around the world. But national Israel is there. And it's a beacon of his assurance that he's not finished with you or I, with the nations, with Israel. And it was his vehicle to bring the word of God to the nations. And it's still his vehicle because it's still doing that. It's an amazing thing. But Jesus is this high priest. Now, when Jesus touched a dead body, what did dead bodies do? Very unnatural things, right? They stood up and were alive. And there's kind of a, I mean, it's a humorous idea to think of. Jesus, there's no record of Jesus going into Tiberias. And some people thought, well, because there was no walled off or separate cemetery. It was just like open. So if Jesus had like walked into Tiberias and walked through the, near the cemetery, maybe all the dead people would have stood up. There would have been a huge issue there. Um, but he never went into Tiberias. So, and one of the reasons probably why is because of the cleanliness. Because walking among dead or buried uh, beings is, makes you ritually impure. Jesus can't be ritually impure. He can't be contaminated. So the, the result is the restoration of life. Because he is the life. He, he, he died, was buried, and rose. He's the only one who can do that. This is different from Levitical commandments, which stated that when there was a period of ritual purification and separateness to be instituted, when someone came into contact with a dead body, you see when Jesus heals dead people, he doesn't have to go off and ritually bathe and clean himself. Because when, when he encounters dead people, they come to life. When he encounters sick people, they receive their sight. Demons go out of them. They can speak. They can walk. That's the incredible thing. So where these rules apply to everybody else, if a rabbi was to visit and touch someone who was sick, he would have to go and, and bathe. If a priest did the same thing, he would have to go in and bathe and go through a period of purification. Jesus doesn't do that because he's our great high priest. And in closing upon this very subject, this is the Jesus we serve. This is the Jesus we serve. He is the great high priest. And I'm going to read Hebrews 4, 4, 11 to 16. Because this is a mighty, mighty piece of scripture. There we go. 
Because this is what we can count on every time. Like, we're sinners. Like, we deserve death. We, we should die because we're in a state of rebellion from God. But God in His mercy reaches out to us and He sends us His Son who sheds His blood. He didn't. He was sinless. We should have been on that cross, not Him. And He conquers death and He extends this gift to us. So it's through the power of Christ that He purifies us. Like that woman was touched and totally transformed. And here, he is our great high priest. says, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Uh, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. If it ended there, that would be quite terrifying. Everything is open. Nothing is covered. We are totally exposed. Our sin, everything is open. But look at this. Seeing then that we have a great high priest, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. That is an amazing thing. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Even though everything's laid out and we're naked, everything is laid out before God. He sees everything. We can't cover anything. And the scripture testifies that despite that terror, through Jesus, we can come boldly to the throne. That is an incredible thing. And that is what each one of us have. That's what that woman did in the flesh, in the physical. She came boldly before Jesus and just reached out and grabbed them. And then admitted the whole thing before a whole throng of people. It was me. And he said, your healing has restored your daughter, your faith. That is an amazing thing to take home. And so I'm going to just close in prayer. But I'm really, like when you look at these stories, there's so many incredible truths that yes, Jesus and these Jewish people 2,000 years ago, but it continues to echo and move forward and move forward. And this stuff is prevalent and relevant today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just praise your name, Lord God. We thank you that we can just immerse ourselves in your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that he's a great high priest, that there's healing in his wings, that you heal and restore our souls, that we can come boldly before you, boldly before the throne through Jesus. Lord God, we thank you for this incredible story of faith. We thank you. May we be like that woman that in need, Daily, day in, day out, we reach out for you. We reach out for restoration. We reach out for with repentance. We reach out to have more of you in faith. Not in hopeful wishing or superstition or legalism or whatever. We reach out in faith, true faith, that we may be sons and daughters of you 
and one day we will stand before you and we can stand before you because of the finished work of the great high priest, Jesus, who allows us to come boldly into your presence because of his shed blood. Amen. Amen.